Welcome to the season four premiere of Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm the creator of Fruit Bowl, Dave Quantic. I started collecting interviews for Fruit Bowl way back in 2018. And since starting the pod, with each new season, I've tried to do something different with the format, just to keep things spicy. So this season, in addition to presenting the full-length interviews for each episode, I'm going to feature a selection of listener comments. I want to hear from you. And as a way to get the conversation started, I'm going to suggest a topic. Tell me about a memorable hookup. Maybe it was super hot. Maybe it was really embarrassing. Or in a unique location with a surprising person. Make sure to set the scene for us. Tell us who you are, how old you are, and where this happened. Give us the what, the why, and the how. Give your story a beginning, middle, and end. And keep it under five minutes. So, how can you send in your comments? My preference is for you to use the voice memo app on your phone and then email the sound file to dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com. This way I can edit the comments similar to how I do with the main interview. But you can also just write an email or tweet at me and I'll read it for you. As soon as I start getting comments, I'll start including them in future episodes. Another exciting development for Season 4 is a reboot of the Getting Fresh episodes. As you may already know, many of the interviews I feature are from my archive. Some are from as far back as 2018. So, for people whose interviews are more than a year old, I'm giving them the option to record updates about what their life has been like since their initial interview. And I already have the first Getting Fresh update episode in the can. That's right. In about a week, I will post Justin's update, which is very fun and frisky. This won't be required of my archive interviewees. Those who don't want to provide an update won't have a Getting Fresh episode. But I wanted to offer it just as an option because, as I've said before, we are always evolving and changing, even decades after coming out. So I'm hoping these Getting Fresh episodes will help convey that. Okay, the last update I'll give for now is that Fruit Bowl has a new host. I'm excited to welcome Rebecca M. Davis as the Season 4 voice of Fruit Bowl. And a big shout-out and thank you to Syra for making Season 3 sound so special. Well, that's it for now. I've got a few other exciting developments percolating in the background, but I will share more about them when they're a little more developed. For now... I'm excited to welcome you to Season 4. Now, here's Justin. We're not designed for monogamy. The reason that the penis has a a head on it is because the the lip of the head, with a pistoning action, is supposed to scoop out the previous guy's cum before you shoot your own. We are literally physically designed for gangbangs. Welcome to the season four premiere of Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. Justin, age 48. I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, which is a you know wonderful little town. It's a university town, Brown and RISD. This episode was recorded in July of 2019 in San Francisco. 
Providence was a lovely place to grow up. It's a, it's a funky town. It's got a lot of a very particular kind of flavor to it. And it's definitely kind of influenced me throughout my life. My parents were professors, were academics. My mother and my father were uh, separated when I was six. Uh, and then my, my father married my stepmother fairly early, right after that. My mother ended up staying in, in Providence for a while and then moved down to Virginia when I was um, uh, entering high school. So I, would, I stayed with my dad and my, and my stepmom, and then I would go back and, and visit my, my, my mom in, um, in Virginia. And she lived on a farm, on a cattle ranch, actually, but did academic work in Richmond and uh, also ended up teaching in Charlottesville and at UVA. So I've been very much, my, I grew up kind of enmeshed in an academic life, uh, and now, after spending a lot of my life running from the family business, I am, in fact, an academic now. <laughs> so we all become a little bit more like our parents than we expect uh, by the time we hit middle age, I find. I gr- grew up with a lot of strong women. Uh, my family was you know, basically a matriarchy uh, on my mother's side. And queer women as well. My aunt, when I was growing up, uh, she, my maternal aunt, she had a girlfriend for about five years when I was growing up. It's funny, she ends up, she ended up not really identifying as queer herself. Her girlfriend was definitely a lesbian, but she herself never even really defined herself as bisexual. I think it kind of ended up not really working for her sexually, the relationship. But I had this, you know, I had a, a wonderful role model that way. And then my mother was also friends with a lot of lesbians, and she had little dalliances herself, apparently, I found out later. Um, I didn't run into queer men until adulthood, though, and that was a big shift. I, I don't know when I, when I encountered the idea of sex for the first time, it feels like I've always known. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's. I can't remember if my parents ever the, ever had the talk with me exactly. My mother was very much a second wave feminist. I grew up in a feminist household. Uh, my grandmother was a, a feminist as well, and adamantly so, which was quite wonderful to have that kind of role model for with older women. And she was very much an advocate for population control and believed very much in, in family planning and all this stuff. So I just grew up in a household where it was understood that you, you know, uh, abortion right, abortion was a right, um, family planning was, was a responsibility, uh, sex existed. Uh, it was also for pleasure. It was so infused in my, in my kind of feminist family upbringing that I don't really know when, I don't have a, a memory of a specific time in which it started. I do remember that I wasn't sure about my own identity because I had erotic dreams when I was a kid of both men and women. And so I remember, <laughs> I was a very precocious child. I remember explaining that to my mother. And apparently to, she she tells me that I, at one point, even to all the family members, that I went around a family gathering and basically asked, you know, asked everybody, would you be okay if I wound up, like, how would you handle it if I wound up queer? I don't remember doing that. But... I do remember that I was adamant that I didn't know, you know, that I didn't know what my identity was because I hadn't tried sex yet. That I've had erotic, you know, fantasies about men and about women, and I haven't tried it yet, so I'm going to wait until I try it to to make a decision. Uh, that was my kind of stance as a, as a child. And I and I grew up in the 1970s, so that was actually fairly 
you know, again, precocious and kind of odd for, for children of that time period. You know, I was accepted as the, the, this odd child within my family and loved as such. But, you know, I would get a lot of harassment um, outside of that, you know. In school, in elementary school or kindergarten and such, I would be attacked regularly. And I've always thought of that, you know, because I would, you know, the, the boys would basically, in, you know, first, second, third grade, would, you know, uh, gang up on me and try to, try to beat me up pretty much every recess, it felt like. And the narrative I've told myself about that is that I was the gay kid, and this is what happens as the gay child. Recently, one of my students, <laughs> Maya Kobabe, did a graphic novel called Genderqueer about growing up as a genderqueer person. And it, it showed me another, an alternative narrative about my own childhood that, that uh, could make sense as well, that maybe I could also imagine my, my own story as being uh, a genderqueer kid. I hated masculine tropes. I hated all the things that were boy, that boys were supposed to do. You know, it felt like there was this long list and how we were supposed to behave and dress and act. And, and I hated all of it. Um, I never liked the competitive nature of group sports um, or even solo sports like boxing. Um, my, my grandfather was a, a boxer and I, I tried at one point. Uh, I eventually, as an adult, kind of fell into, I mean, I like working out at the gym. I like that kind of, but it's it's very much a solo activity that you're doing. And there can be competitive aspects to it, but it's what you make out of it, right? It's it's a solo journey on your own and how you want to use your body uh, and, and, and shape your body. And that speaks to me much more than the idea of like groups of people or, or just, you know, being in competition with other men. At the same time, I had no interest in becoming a girl. Like I knew that that, that those set of categories were bullshit as well. So I wasn't interested in, both genders rankled me to no end as a child. And so, you know, if the, the language just didn't exist back in the 70s, but I could imagine now, if I was growing up now, that I would have taken on potentially a genderqueer identity, a non-binary identity. Maybe that would have worked well for me. As it was, I feel like I came to, you know, very much identify now as a cisgender gay man, but it took decades for me to figure out my own approach to masculinity. And part of that, I think, is because I wanted to fuck masculinity. I wanted to fuck it. I wanted to fuck men, right? So if I was going to be able to fuck men, I needed to figure out how to, what masculinity meant and what manhood meant, and also to accept some of that for myself. So, you know, it was a long process, but it, but over the course of a couple decades, I basically had to figure out, okay, what are the things that about the, the identity of man, of you know, masculinity, that I can use and that feel genuine to me and that I can play with and have fun with? And then I took all the rest of it and toss it. I still think sports is bullshit. Uh, would I have gone on that journey differently if I'd maybe you know, had an identity as a non-binary kid when I was young? And I know this. even the, the discussion of that as a possibility can really upset people who believe in more essentialist views of, of gender and sexuality. But I do believe that the gender and sexuality is it's a, it's a mixture of both nature and nurture. And so the environmental context, the cultural context, the generational context matters a lot on how we form our identities.
So I, I did receive sex education in high school, and I, my mother in particular would have been someone I could talk to about it. My father, much less so. Again, I, I never felt like I was at a loss at finding the kind of practical information, but the more existential sorts of thoughts and questions. That, again, I was in this situation of understanding that I had the potential, you know, in terms of my fantasy life and everything, the potential to, to be potentially straight, bisexual, gay, I wasn't sure. I didn't really have any access to porn. I um, I make comic books, I teach comic books, I'm a comic book geek uh, through and through. And I grew up uh, reading you know, superhero comics and all this stuff, which have a kind of level of stylized sexuality to them. The, the idea of all these muscular men in, in tights grappling with each other in their underwear is, you know, there's something a little gay about it. So I was definitely influenced by that. Um, but... I was reading comics as a kid when a new generation of comic artists were portraying male bodies a little bit more realistically. And earlier on, superheroes would be depicted in terms of muscularity, but would have no nipples, would have no body hair, and no packages, no bulges. And that changed in the 80s. So right about when I was entering you know, my teenage years and puberty and all this was when the first superheroes started having chest hair. So you had Wolverine, he was a hairy dude, and George Perez started drawing superheroes with bulges. And nipples started even appearing. So that that was formative. Uh, Wolverine was fascinating to me. Even though I preferred Storm as a character to Wolverine, I loved looking at the pictures of Wolverine, which makes a lot more sense now. <laughs> the first time kind of discovering masturbation, I figured out how to kind of hump a, a pillow. I think, you know, this is kind of, you know, pre-puberty. And there was, and, and, I, and then I do remember my first ejaculate being like, whoa, hey, you know, what's that about? I didn't figure out how to grasp the penis until a little bit later. It was all humping the pillow. So even even though, you know, sex ed was telling me, okay, it's, it's natural for people to have sexual desire. And even the ejaculate moment was like, okay, it was shocking. But, it, but I, I knew that this was going to come at some point, so to speak. Nobody tells you how to masturbate, right? <laughs> you got to figure that stuff out on your own. So uh, the way I figured it out was humping a pillow until I eventually figured out, oh, you can just grab the dick, make it a little bit more easy. My first time was with this older man. He was 21. I was 17. We were classmates in this college class that I was taking as a high school student. It was the final day of class, and we we're all going out uh, and partying. And he invited me to you know, spend the night with him, stay over, um, sleep over. But I knew that he was interested in me. So there was a part of me that was like really excited and really nervous. One of my other classmates told me, like, hey, don't you know? Don't you understand? Tim is interested in you. And the, this other woman in the class, or Sharon, was also interested in me. And I kind of, you know, just made a beeline for Tim, basically. Uh, and so I spent the night and, you know, slept in the same bed, and then we had this kind of awkward, fumbling sex, and it was terrible. I mean, of course. I mean, I don't no idea what I was doing. Um, but he didn't know what he's doing? Yeah, probably not much. Yeah, he didn't know much of what he was doing either. Yeah, it was just awkward, kind of bad sex. And then I found out later that um, he was actually kind of upset because you know, I, I was there for the summer, and then I went back to Rhode Island and went back to high school. And I knew that 
basically I would never have to see him again after that night, which made everything a lot easier because I could just have this experimentation. And then with no ramifications and no consequences, I could go back home and figure out what it meant and on my own time. And, um, and he apparently was hurt by that, which I didn't even kind of realize until later when I talked to this mutual friend from the class. And she said, oh, yeah, Tim was quite hurt by the fact that you got what you wanted and then just vanished. It's also correct, but I was 17 and a virgin, and he was 21 and uh, an actualized gay man, right? So, you know, what did he expect exactly? Mm -hmm. I still needed to process what it meant. So I went back to high school uh, for my senior year and uh, didn't know how to deal with it. You know, it wasn't good, but I knew it felt right in some way. So even though it wasn't good sex, I was like, all right, what does this mean? Either I'm straight and this is just a kind of phase, or I'm bi, and, and, you know, uh, sex with women will feel the same or better, or I'm gay. So I still wasn't sure. And then about halfway through my senior year, I told my best group of friends that I had sex with a man. And um, they were very supportive. It was a good group of friends. One of them ended up being gay as well. Um, And then I went to college at State University of New York at Purchase, you know, by the way, is like the the first campus on the on, in the country to have a GLBT uh, group, um, literally. So it was extremely progressive. There were no sports at all. The only the only sports club was the uh, Ultimate Frisbee team. They were the jocks. The Ultimate Frisbee players were the jocks, and it was a co-ed group. You know, precisely where I needed to to wind up. Right. I mean, after being the kind of weird kid, the weird artsy kid who was you know, not boyish enough and all this stuff to wind up in a campus that was all artsy freaks, then suddenly I could be like a popular kid. Holy shit. So I was, you know, I became kind of obsessed with being popular, which was funny. Um, I remember first encountering gay men. My RA was was gay and he was there with his boyfriend. And I rem- remember seeing them kiss and kind of lie in bed together or kind of, in a, you know, be affectionate with each other. And it was shocking, like in a really visceral level. Like I just felt it like this sense of shock. And um, even though intellectually I knew that that was fine and, you know, um, I'd seen women being affectionate in, in uh, intimate bonds before, but I, I hadn't seen it with men. And I still, I remember to this day, like how I was surprised at how shocking it felt actually when I, when I finally got to see it in person. In my first week there, I, you know, everybody's running around and, you know, partying and, getting drunk for the first time or whatever it is with, without their parents around. And there's one woman who invited me up to her room and I was sitting on her bed and I was like, I know what she wants. She wants to hook up. And I, I'm feeling, I just, it's awkward. I don't, I don't feel right. And um, so I left, then a a boy did the same thing and I jumped on it. You know, looking back, I realized that my, my, my set of decisions were kind of poor that I remember my first sexual experiences were, to the a soundtrack of Bed Midler's um, Broadway tunes, which I still am quite ashamed of. Um, but you know, he was a theater ballet queen, and he was really into Bette Midler. And but he was a he was a closet case, so I, I wasn't supposed to be able to tell anybody because nobody would figure out that this ballet dancer, major uh, Broadway loving Bette Midler queen, was gay. Right. So I had to, even though I was completely out at this point, I came out really quickly. As soon as I figured out what I was about, 
I needed to come out immediately. Like I'm, I'm one of these people who I've never been good at the closet. Um, I'm disorganized. I don't know. Who, I don't can't remember who knows what. And I just try to think of myself as a really honest person. I just need to be out in the world and kind of with my truth. And the idea of the closet was never even a possible question for me. So it was interesting that my first boyfriend, I had to kind of maintain the closet for him for you know for six months or whatever it was. Did he eventually come around? I mean, you know, again, he was, you know, an eighteen-year-old ballet dancer. I mean, nobody was surprised. Oh. Mark's gay. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> and then he transferred, which was great because then he could move on, and I was able to start, you know, realizing I don't just have to like leap on every of penis that presents itself to me. I can actually like have you know some more uh, options. I moved to San Francisco uh, uh, partly because of the comic book world here, that the, there's a, a vibrant comic book history and, and community here. But then also for the gay stuff, right? So I, you know, this was a big town of queers. I moved in with a bunch of lesbians on Valencia Street when Valencia Street was the epicenter of dyke culture. I was known as the boy because, you know, because <laughs> it was, all, it was all, all the dykes. And they were, I was like, I have, a, I have a name. I'm not just a boy. Uh, it was really a wonderful time to be in San Francisco. And so all of my friends were straight people or lesbians. And then I would go cruising parks and stuff for sex. And all of those men that I would have sex with, I would have nothing in common with. So my social life was completely disconnected from my sexual life. And at some point, about two years into this, I was like, I can't. I mean, what's the, why am I here? Why am I in San Francisco? I need to find gay men that I have something in common with, that I can be part of a community that is both, both sexual and social. Um, but I, I hated mainstream gay culture. In the same way that I hated normative masculinity, I also hated normative gayness. I hated cologne. I hated Madonna. I hated Cher. Like I, all the kind of basic tropes of gayness didn't work for me. But mostly, I would go to some of these gay bars, walk in, and I had like long hair and piercings and stuff. And everybody there was a kind of clone. It's funny. I kind of look more like that clone now <laughs> in my life. Um, and they were all kind of look at me like I was a, a freak, you know, like walking in like I did not belong. And so there was this moment when I walked into the Hole in the Wall bar in San Francisco back at its heyday, because it was the coolest bar in the world from about 1993 to 1997, when the smoking rules came in and kind of killed that iteration of that bar. But for this chunk of time there, it was the fucking coolest bar you can imagine. It was, you know, and I, I remember walking in for the first time and I walked in and they were playing like the Stooges or Patti Smith or something, music that I actually listened to, not a share remix. And there were bikers and like weird naked guys and tattooed hipsters walking around and just being freaky and all this like weird art like coming off the walls and like it was I was like oh my god I found my people my tribe this is they love Dick and they love Patty Smith like holy shit this is a thing and I never looked back like that was where I met some of my best friends and collaborators and realizing that gayness could be much broader than what I was imagining that there are alternative gay cultures and communities. And then I also, you know, eventually uh, over time, you kind of loosen up your own categories as well. And I'm never going to be a circuit queen, but I also don't, you know, I'm a little less judgmental about <laughs> about Madonna, for example. She's, she's come out with some good things here and there, so there you go. <laughs> I still prefer Patti Smith, though. I had been in San Francisco for two years, and I just come back from traveling in Nicaragua and uh, Central America for about a year. And came back, and I was just, I was like, I have to change this. Like, I got to change what I'm doing. 
So I I was in the Eagle, which was at that point owned by the the guys who own the Hole in the Wall. So the Eagle also was part of this this aesthetic of kind of weird alternative punk rock kind of biker gang, artsy, leathery, gay male culture. And I was at the trough urinal and the young man was next to me and we were kind of checking each other out. And he immediately was hitting on me. And it's it's funny because I'm such a like, I have a hard time saying no in general in my life. It's an ugly word. No, it's just like, you know, the most you'll get from me is usually maybe or, you know, a little bit later. So, but I was like, I'm going to change my ways. Like I, I need to, I know what I need and I don't need another hookup. And I wasn't that attracted to this guy, I thought at the moment, but he's super cool. Like we started talking and I said to him, I was like, I'm not that attracted to you, but I think you're really cool. and I'd love to be your friend. And he was like, all right, whatever, dude. Like that's, you know, but we did, we ended up becoming really good friends over the next six months. And then six months into it, I mean, he wasn't thinking of me romantically or sexually at all at that point. And I started falling for him. So, um, you know, he's, he's fucking hot too. So <laughs> then I spent another six months being tortured by that where, you know, all this angst about like, I'm falling for him and, you know, he doesn't know it. And, and if I tell him it's going to ruin our friendship and this is such an important thing to me, especially since I need gay male friends. So I went through a lot of angst about it. And then I remember bringing him over to my apartment at the time, and it was, again, these lesbians I was, I was living with. And we had an emu egg from uh, one of my roommates was a uh, worked for the Humane Farming Association, and they had saved a bunch of emus. And the emus were running wild on their, on their land and would drop these eggs that looked like big dinosaur, prehistoric sorts of eggs, mottled green and blue, gorgeous. And she, she had one of these big ones, and I'm a huge fan of eggs. So I wanted to taste what it was like. So we wanted to get the egg out of the eggshell, but keep the eggshell intact because it was so beautiful. So Nash came, he just stepped right in. He figured out a way to drill the hole into the egg and how to suck the egg out. <laughs> and this is like five chicken eggs worth of egg. Suck the egg out of the eggshell without breaking the eggshell. And he's doing this, and I remember him doing this over the kitchen table. And I look up and my my lesbian roommates and friends are kind of behind him and going like, you know, like he was being kind of vetted, you know, by them uh, as a possible partner. And as soon as they saw that he could suck a emo egg out of the shell without breaking it, they were like, you, you need to date this man. Like this man is, is <laughs> worth his weight in gold. So I mustered the courage finally and I told him and he was taken aback, you know, initially, like, I don't know if I'm there and I don't think of you that way anymore and whatever. And it took me about two weeks, and then I finally got him in bed, and that was end of story. So we started dating from then on. Okay. Yeah, and 20, 20 years later. So sounds like maybe you just needed somebody that wasn't going to do like the hard sell, you know? Like needed yeah. wanted you to make the decision, you know, instead of coming on strong, mm. you know. I I also I just really needed gay male friends mm-hmm. like more than I needed sex yeah. at that point, and. I've never liked the idea of kind of that intense romantic love. I I see it, I feel it, I felt it. Um, and it's interesting because the culture lionizes it. And a lot of people that I know love that feeling. They live for that feeling. And it's constantly being romanticized in music and literature and, and you know, the, the greatest feeling you could ever have. And it's always kind of terrified me. It feels like a loss of control. It's something that kind of makes you go against your own judgments. It's this kind of visceral 
feeling that that you can't kind of override with your own intellect. So I've never the idea of being in love in this in this sense has always been something to be perfectly honest that I've not enjoyed and, and avoided. <laughs> um, so you know I've certainly felt kind of had you know major crushes on people, but the 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 only real love of my life is is my husband. I, I often wonder like what would have happened if I'd actually just ended up sleeping with my husband that initial time when we saw each other in the trough urinal. And I don't know, like maybe we would have, you know, had sex and then become friends afterwards. And then, but because that erotic tension would have been dissipated, maybe it wouldn't have wound up with a relationship. I, I don't know. There's no way to know. Um, I think about how common it is for straight people to build up to the sex, right? They become friends for interminably and they go on all these dates and like just to get to the sex, and which I think is kind of ludicrous. Because us gay boys, usually we fuck first and figure it out later, right? But it, that's actually the way it worked out with my husband, that we became friends first, and then we got into bed together. And that combination was romance. And for me, again, because I don't like this kind of crazy, like, initial in love, uh, what is the French have a term, the, the coup de feu, de feu or something, where the, the stroke, of, you know, the bolt of lightning, you know, I don't like that shit. So the kind of slow growth organically into a loving relationship is was so much more both effective for me and also stable, you know? So, you know, my husband and I are deeply in love with each other after all these years, after 20 years. It's really pretty beautiful. And I don't know if it would have happened if the events had gone down another way. So I was an exclusive top for, for most of my life. I had a hard time getting fucked, and it was to the point where whenever I could get a cock in there, it was tight, but I could get a cock in there, but then I would start bleeding. And so I, at some point, I just kind of figured, okay, I'm not built for this in some way. Like, my skin's too sensitive. Something's going on. And I just kind of wrote it off, and I was an exclusive top for many, many years, and, and my husband was versatile. So I would always fuck him. And then at some point, his sexuality shifted, and he became a dominant daddy top. And he essentially lost the desire or ability to be fucked. Um, and, you know, th this happened over a little bit of time. So for about a year, I was the only one still fucking him. But then the writing was on the wall. I knew that, okay, at some point, he's going to probably not be able to be fucked even by me. So I was like, well, I need to man up and learn how to take a cock in my ass. Uh, so I got a little dildo thing that's made for the butt, you know, good vibrations, you know, one of those kind of good, you know, uh, little things and got that up there and would jerk off and eventually it stopped bleeding and got easier. And then I remember, <laughs> I remember being on Scruff and this one guy um, wanting to come, he was a hot guy from visiting from Florida or something. And uh, he wanted to come over and I said, well, I'm, I, you know, I'm a top. He, he advertised himself as a top. And I was like, I'm a, I'm a top, but like, I, you know, I'm trying to learn, but I, you know, he said, oh, that's my specialty. Like I am, I am, that is exactly what my focus is, that I try to find tops who have never been fucked before and I help them through this. And I was like, okay, you've got a new project. So he came over, he had the perfect dick, which was like not too long, but kind of just girthy enough to feel like you were full, but not, you know, just, and he was like, I have the perfect di starter dick. Like it's exactly right. And he knew what he was doing. He took his time. He loosened me up you know, ate me out for a long time beforehand. I mean, all the stuff. He was, I still, I forgot his name, but wherever you are, Florida man, thank you. 
Um, he came back a couple other times. He was visiting for work or something. So I worked with him a couple times over this time time period, and then just kind of gradually worked my way up the 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 different the the, the fuckability chain uh, until eventually I was taking huge cocks and you know doing all all sorts of stuff with it. Um, when my husband was uh, really transitioned to being just a top, I was able to say, okay, well, actually, I've been experimenting too, and you can fuck me now. Um, so he's he did that for a little bit. We even flip-fucked for a brief, glorious moment. But I think for him, topping is, is not just the act of fucking, but he was really into this idea of the dominant daddy. And I'm not going to take on the role of the subservient boy um, in our relationship, and after you know, a long time after years and years, like that, that wouldn't have felt right. It just wouldn't feel authentic. So our, our sex life kind of dwindled out a bit. Um, and now, you know, we still, you know, suck each other off occasionally. And, um, but we're not fucking at, at least now. Uh, but we had, you know, 16 years of like fantastic fucking sex and we're still madly in love with each other. We, we spoon every night and cuddle and he's my life partner. He's my husband. So, you know, I, th- I think when you, when you think in terms of long-term relationships, humans shift and change. It's not, it's, um, sexuality is not static. And so you have to have as a possibility, if you're going to be in a long-term relationship for decades with someone, you have to accept the possibility that this person, that you may not be sexually compatible for all of that uh, relationship span. You probably won't be, in fact. And I think the vast majority of relationships that last a certain length, um, do become asexual um, or certainly less sexual. And so kind of acknowledging that, figuring out what to do. You know, this actually started happening right before we uh, got married, when, when it became legal to be married, and we decided to do it. And we had to have that discussion, like, should we be married? I mean, is this what we want to do? And we were both very clear that, no, we're husbands at this point. It's We've built, built up a romance over so many years, and it doesn't go away, even if we're not sticking each other's dicks in each other. And then also that that relates to monogamy, right? So I think monogamy from, you know, monogamy is not a natural state for humans. We're not geese. We're not built for it. So you can kind of override your natural instincts through culture and society and context. And so some people do make monogamy work, but uh, you're fighting your programming to a certain extent. And uh, I would much rather lean into my programming. <laughs> so, you know, we've never been monogamous in the course of our relationship, but but the nature of our non-monogamy has changed over time. And what initially was, you know, maybe the first five years, it was kind of don't ask, don't tell. Next five years, it was, oh, I'm going to go on a date tonight. Okay, have a good time. You know, um, always maintaining this idea that we sleep in the same bed together uh, if we're in the same city at the same time. And then the, you know, the just the last five years, it's been, uh, he's taken on uh, boys like in a daddy-boy relationship. So he has kind of secondary relationships now. Uh, I took on a boy for about two years, and that was an emotional roller coaster. So I don't think I'm ever going to do that again. I'm going to stick with, you know, fuck buddies and friends with benefits and all that. My husband and I have this deep, deep bond that was forged both in in the bedroom and, and with sex, but also with intimacy, with uh, love, with shared responsibilities, with shared lives. I mean, it's so multi-layered and deep. We love each other's families. I mean, it, we're, we're so bound together that, you know, if one of those one of those elements loses steam, the, the, the sex itself, there's all the other things um, that give it meaning and richness. So I, I, we're not designed for monogamy. 
The reason that the penis has a, a head on it is because the, the lip of the head, is, when it, with the pistoning action, is supposed to scoop out the previous guy's cum before you shoot your own. We are literally physically designed for gangbangs. We're bonobo, bonobo chimps, and bonobo chimps fuck each other endlessly. That's their grooming mechanism. It's how they create community and, and protect each other, and, and that's what we are uh, naturally, right? Now, we, we override that constantly through creation of society and you know culture and um, personal bonds. So I understand that that can be overridden, but it's difficult, and I'd much rather lean into my biological programming than lean away from it. So... I'm much more comfortable, I think, with fuck buddies and friends with benefits and anonymous partners. Boys tend to be a lot of responsibility, a lot of work. So, But my husband loves that project. He loves kind of taking on a boy and helping train that boy, right? But that's not my shtick. So, you know, I, I am friends with his boys, and they're part of our extended family. And he's, you know, certainly puts up with all of my shenanigans. Um, so it's interesting kind of watching our sexuality shifts and changes. Like he used to be able to go to the dirty bookstore or, you know, sex parties. And his sexuality has shifted away from that. He's really interested in these one-on-one power dynamic relationships with interactions with other other men. And I have gotten kind of more slutty in that sense and do more sex parties, more group sex, more, um, yeah, it's just things shift and, you, and your relationship has to adapt to that. I also think that this is one of the, one of the best things that the queer communities can give to the rest of the world, right? Because we were denied the dominant paradigm for so long, which was monogamous marriage, we had to come up with our own systems, our own relationship structures. And we were really good at that. Daddy boy, triad relationships, the pups, the pup packs. I mean, there's all these different kinds of sexual, romantic, social interactions that we've created as queer people that are incredibly dynamic, and I don't ever want to lose that culture, even though we can also be married now. I don't want to lose that stuff because I think it's a really important part of what we bring to the world. And in fact, inspires other other people. Uh, one of our best straight couple friends had this moment where they hadn't been fucking since the birth of their child, and the wife was kind of gnawing at the bit. She was just like, I need some sex. Like, this is ridiculous. And she went to the husband and said, of our friends, of all of our friends, who has the most successful relationship? And he said, you know, he said, well, you know, Justin Nash. Um, and she said, well, you know that they're non-monogamous, that they play outside of their relationship. And and he said, okay, you know. So they had the discussion in part because of us being role models for that uh, for a different kind of paradigm. Um, and what I see constantly with my straight friends who were monogamous, uh, and I know that they're gay monogamous couples as well. Less so in San Francisco. It's pretty unusual. It's kind of a weird fetish, kind of like if you're, you know, really into feet or something, you know, you're just into monogamy, right? Um, But what I see is that these relationships become kind of toxic oftentimes uh, sexually and oftentimes result in celibacy because one person doesn't want to have sex anymore, one one of the members of the couple, or if not both. And then that ends up creating enforced celibacy on the other partner, which is, in my mind, unconscionable. Like, that's not ethical. It's one thing to be monogamous and demand monogamy, but then you got to put out, right? Because if you don't put out, you, you're creating celibacy for your partner, and that's a, a crime. Like, you, you can't take away someone's sexuality. I also feel like, you know, sexuality is infinitely vast and profound and mysterious and one of the great profundities of human existence, right? Um, and the idea that all of your explorations within that field should be limited to one person, for the rest of your life, 
I mean, it sends a deep shudder through my through my being. I can't even imagine that. I've never been in a monogamous relationship. I, I never will be. Sex is too big, and I want to explore it for myself. And that means exploring with a lot of other people. Uh, I grew up in, the, in an era, obviously, before phones, before the internet. And for us, it was going to certain parks, going to certain driving roundabouts, and picking up guys in cars, walking along certain paths in the park, finding other men that way. In Providence, in San Francisco, even when I first moved to San Francisco, there was a lot of lot more opportunities for this, for cruising. My sexuality was, were, uh, was formed in the fires of that era, right, of cruising. And I don't even know how I figured this out. Like, how did I figure out as a, as a young person where to go? I, it just, you could kind of smell it. You know, it's like part of the gaydar. Like, okay, that part of that park is going to be, that's going to be a cruising zone after dark. You can tell. Or like that walkway where these guys are driving by. Like, that's, that's a cruising area, right? And you would just go down there and walk along and, and you could make eye contact. You could figure out the signals. It was, it's pretty magical now thinking about it, like how we did that. But that was where my sexuality was formed. And now, you know, I, I speak to kind of young guys who never had that experience. They always, you know, they, they're usually for them, it's on the apps and they can kind of see beforehand what this person looks like, what they're into, what they can expect from them. That's a really different world. Um, the, the mystery of sex and possibility was much greater uh, with the, the era of cruising, because you never really knew what you were going to get. And I ended up having sex with all different kinds of people that I would not have sex with now, because now I would screen them on my phone, uh, or even in a bar, right? Because this was before I was going to bars. It took me a long time to kind of make my way to the gay bars. Hmm. Could you walk me through just one example of cruising? Because mm. I feel like I agree people don't really know about it, mm. but I also feel like they need a little more explanation than just I looked at someone and it mm -hmm. ended up, we ended up having sex. Mm -hmm. um, it can, it can be yeah. a generalized mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. version or it can be a specific one. So there was in Providence, there was a, um, uh, there's a Providence river that come, cuts through the city. And um, there's a, an area, an area um, along the river, which is parkland park comes up to it. And there's uh, where the boating houses are. The, um, the, the rowing crews have places there. And after dark, it's completely deserted. And I don't even, again, I have no idea how I figured this out. But, I, and I never had a car. I still, to this day, don't know how to drive. I've never owned a car. So I would go to these places walking, right, or taking a bicycle. And, but what I would do is I would walk along and guys would, and I would kind of have my, it's harder in the winter when you had more clothes on and jackets and stuff. But, you know, I'd walk along and like have my hands in my pants and kind of saunter as provocatively as I could, I guess, without without being too provocative, because you don't want a straight guy to to notice, right, and to potentially harm you. So you kind of walk along and kind of stop and um, maybe kind of take in your surroundings, and the cars would go by, and sometimes they would pull up um, ahead of you, and you kind of like, all right, you kind of open your jacket a little bit more, you know, get your hands more in your pants and uh, the pockets, and and kind of saunter up slowly until. You can kind of see them watching you in the rearview mirror or something. And then by the time I got to the car, I could usually tell whether that person was cruising or not. Um, so I'd kind of 
stop at the car window and be like, until they would roll it down, or sometimes it would already be rolled down, and then be like, hey, what's up? You know, how you doing tonight? You know, and you have this like inane conversation that would eventually lead to, hey, you want to go for a ride? Yeah, all right. You get in the car. And have sex in the car. Sometimes have sex in the car. Oftentimes they would drive to another spot and then we'd have sex in the car. Or, you know, along these these park areas, we could go into the bushes. Um, Or sometimes I would go to their houses. And it's funny looking back now, like, I was fearless. I never thought of the possibility of, like, serial killers or whatever. And the reality is I had sex with hundreds of, I mean, certainly over my, over that, that time period, I don't know. I don't really have any way of knowing, but I've been in strange men's houses and cars, hundreds if not thousands of them, and never had a problem. <laughs> never. There was one guy in a park, in Buena Vista Park in, in San Francisco. And so the park cruising was a little bit different, where you'd walk around these little paths in the park. And there'd be guys like there up against a, you know, a tree or something with their, you know, with the one leg up, you know, kind of, and, and that was just so clearly like nobody, no straight person is going to be walking around there in the middle of the night, you know, in the, in the shadows. Like, so it was clear, right? You still have to kind of play a game, right? A little bit of a dance. There could be potentially bashers or something there, I suppose. Um, so you still kind of play a bit of a dance, like kind of stop and look at each other and, you know, kind of grab each other, grab your crotch or whatever. Um, but one time I was at Buena Vista Park and this one guy, we started chatting and there was something off about his energy that freaked me out. And nothing, I've got nothing to like point to specifically, but I was like, this guy, there's something wrong with this man and he's potentially dangerous. And I kind of got out of there. But that's the only time I can think of in, again, hundreds of, of encounters. Hmm. Uh, it, it's a combination of luck, a combination of, Uh, And also kind of being aware of signals and being kind of smart about it. And also, you know, I think it's less dangerous than people think. One thing that took me a little while to figure out was, and this maybe relates more to um, kind of gender identity as as well, is that the way that I grew up... um, I was like, you know, one of the cool, cool artsy kids, right? Uh, and the jocks were the bad guys. So they were the potentially dangerous. They were idiots. They were, you know, the, all about toxic masculinity, all that shit. And it took me a while to figure out that I actually am attracted to muscle. And I actually love it. Um, I When I moved to San Francisco, so I was like, you know, the tall, super skinny kid with the long hair down to here. And... But I remember, like, going to, like, some dance in New York and, like, being next to some muscle guy and being, like, like just just this incredible, like, oh, my God, I fucking need to touch him. Uh, and I, you know, couldn't really. And it was just, like, what the fuck? You know, like, what is, what is my problem here? But I can't be that guy because, like, that guy is an idiot because he spends time in a gym and, like, he's probably toxic, masculine, st- stupid head. <laughs> um, and then I got to San Francisco uh, I got a job. I was a massage therapist. At this, I got massage training. Uh, I did reception for a gym in a hotel, and I did massage there as well. So then after hours, the gym would close down, and I would sneak into the gym and work out after hours uh, in secret. And I was a closet case gym rat for like a year or two. I was literally closeted about it. I would tell people, like I, my body started changing a little bit, and I would deny it. Um 
fucking weird, like looking back on this. It, just because I assumed that anyone who worked out was a terrible person. And and all the cool people were not interested in that. But I knew I was, you know? Uh, and then walking into the hole in the wall bar, which again was the best bar in the world from, you know, in the mid-90s, I saw not only gay men who were listening to the Stooges and Patti Smith as opposed to Cher and Madonna um, and bikers and, you know, tattooed hipsters and all this stuff, but I saw guys who were muscular who also were cool. So I remember meeting my friend Dave Davenport, who I'm still dear friends with, and we still collaborate on projects. And he was completely covered in tattoos. He's a tattoo artist. He was he's a comic book artist, like I am. And I, you know, and he was, you know, undeniably cool, but he was also muscular. And it fucking blew my mind. I didn't know that that was possible. And then I started being like, okay, I can go to a gym openly. Uh it just seems absurd to even talk this way now because you know, gym culture is so embedded in gay culture. And, but that's literally what I went through. Like, had to come out all over again as someone who enjoyed going to a gym and enjoys muscle and all this stuff. I still am very wary about a lot of the kind of cultural stuff that happens around, you know, uh, depictions of masculinity and muscles and all this kind of stuff. I, you know, hate circuit queen culture, I, you know, certain kinds of you know, weird body fascism that happens within the gay community. But I know that I myself, for me, um, I really like working out. It, it calms me. It's great for my endorphins, endorphin level, stops my anxiety. And I also love muscle and I love getting blowjobs in the, in the, in the gym showers and all, kind of all the stuff that goes along with it. Ends up being a lot of my social life. I, I meet a lot of my friends there. Yeah, so that, I would go back and tell myself, my younger self, um, don't be so hung up on you, your own uh, uh, ideas of what masculinity are uh, is and is not, and that you can define masculinity the way that you want to, and don't, yeah, just chill out. <laughs> Go work out if you want to. It's all right. I don't remember really finding much porn or any porn really when I was a kid. And I was never particularly drawn to porn. It's funny when I ended up doing porn later in my life. And when uh, I hooked up with a guy who ended up being the you know, vice president for Titan, Titan films. And he asked me, he was like, do you want to do porn? I was like, I, I tend to be kind of an experience junkie, right? So I'll try everything at least two, three, four times. And I was like, all right, I've never done that before. I'll do that. You know? So I went to the casting call, and I ended up doing porn for a couple of years and um, had a good time with it. And during that time period, I realized that, oh my God, the gym I go to in San Francisco is full of gay porn stars. I had no idea because I never watched porn. I never bought porn. I wasn't really that interested until I started making it. And then I started became, becoming more interested in, in it as, you know, more from a, an artist's point of view, right? Like, how is it made? And who's doing what, and like what's creating the sense of desire and tension and all that stuff, which now follows me into my comic career. So I, I've done gay porn comics, and I'm very interested in how comics as a medium can deal with the, the genre of erotica and how they can do very specific things with erotic tension that no other medium can do. So I'm very invested in erotica now, even though I never was particularly drawn to it when I was a kid. But I will say that comic book er uh, kind of eroticism in comics was always more interesting to me than film. And to a certain extent, that's true to, to this day. Uh, 
I'm, I'm a faculty advisor for a sex worker student union at the, the college I work at, which is really kind of amazing. I think it's the first, uh, maybe only sex worker student union in the maybe the world for st- student sex worker group. And I really believe in sex worker rights. Sex work, sex work is work. Uh, I have a lot of friends to this day, certainly me in San Francisco, who are porn stars and escorts and, and all sorts of different kinds of sex workers. We need to legalize that. We need to normalize it. We need to understand it better. We need to get rid of the criminalization stuff around it. And accept that that's, this, this kind of interaction will always be part of human life. And we need to uh, respect it. Fruitball interviews are edited for length and narrative clarity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. Fruitbowl collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences. Cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, black people, indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions, a description of the collaborative interview process, and news about future production. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruit Bowl is produced independently without any corporate media infrastructure or full-time staff. Help support our efforts to collect, archive, and share personal stories about queer coming of age by making a small monthly donation through Fruit Bowl's Patreon membership. Patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and exclusive video outtakes from each episode that are not available to the general public. Or promote your business by sponsoring an episode of Fruit Bowl or dedicate an episode to a loved one. Episode sponsorships and dedications are 100% tax-deductible through Fruit Bowl's fiscal partnership with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Fruit Bowl receives no direct funding from Northwest Film Forum, only the use of their nonprofit status to receive tax-deductible donations. Learn more at fruitbowlpodcast.com slash donate or write dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com for more information. Social media platforms often censor mentions or depictions of queer sexuality. Accounts are often suspended or banned outright without notice or due process. As a result, promoting Fruit Bowl is an uphill battle, so we rely on you to help spread the word. Tell your friends about Fruit Bowl, rate us on your podcast platform, or write a review on Apple Podcast. And, of course, you can also follow us, for now, on Twitter at Fruit Bowl Pod and Instagram and TikTok at Fruit Bowl Podcast. Fruit Bowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. Assistant editing and mixing for this episode provided by Dave Pesner. I'm Rebecca M. Davis. This has been a production of Cubed Media, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening.